have a short life on earth and then eternity. This is not it. That is. And how we live here determines what life we will have there. And God is calling us to be wise stewards with this life, with our days and our times, our relationships and our skills, our work and our strength. And so consider the plans you have for today. Consider your plans for this week. Consider your plans for this year or the next five years and keep asking the why question. If you are a young adult and you have plans to get married and have children one day and grow a family, the question is why? Is it because it's expected of you or parents are pressuring you? Do you see that marriage, in a sense, comes from the gospel and reflects the gospel as well? Do you see the big picture? And keep in mind that simple answers will not do. What about school and work? Why are you going to school? Why are you planning to get that degree, to get that job, to make that money, to buy that house? In the end, keep asking the the why questions until you become silent before God. Or if you are a parent and you are planning these things for your child, maybe pressuring them in some way to take 100 AP tests and 100 different extracurricular activities. Why? Why are we focusing on this? We need to be asking this question. If you let's say, have worked for decades and are planning to retire. You want to leave a good legacy. Why? You want to rest. Why? You want to retire. And then what? What is it that you are wanting now that you are letting go of those responsibilities? What is it that God is calling you to do? If you are stressed and tired and are looking forward to this evening to just watch TV or to Go after a hobby. The question is, why? Is that going to drain your soul all the more? Or is it going to refresh your soul, recharge it for the coming week? Or maybe you are in a season of suffering. And you are puzzled at the pain. You are puzzled at the conflict, the unresolved issues, the unnecessary stress, and the unanswered prayers. Keep asking the why question. Why is God allowing this? Could it be that he does not love me? Could it be that there is a bigger reason? Could it be that our minds are limited and we do not understand the work of God? And so we ask these difficult why questions. And I urge you to think hard. These hard questions don't have quick and simple answers. So don't run to your phone right now. And don't run to the TV. And don't run to schoolwork or yard work or even church work with an intent of distracting you from dealing with these hard questions. Consider the health of your soul. Today's message is from Ecclesiastes, so you might expect this to be very overwhelming. And maybe you came here spiritually exhausted, in need of some comfort, some help to get through the week. And honestly, Ecclesiastes would not have been your choice to go to this morning. But maybe, maybe this is what we need today. And so if you are tired of shallow faith, if you are tired of superficial living, open your heart before the Lord and receive this message. The message of Ecclesiastes is this. It is not meant to simply overwhelm you, but more than that, to break you of your old self so that Jesus alone can make you whole. I'll say it again. The message of this book out not leave you only frustrated about the things of life, but bring you to a place of dying to self so that you receive new life in Jesus. 
Allow the message of this book to take away self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-centeredness and leave you poor in spirit. For it is then, according to Jesus, then you will receive the kingdom of God. That is the movement of the sermon today, the problem and then the solution. We will look at life without God and then look at life with God, life under the sun, and then there is hope above the sun. So if you have not done so already, please turn to Ecclesiastes, and we will continue this study. As I say continue because that's where we were last Wednesday. We will go to this text today, and this is part of wisdom literature. We see many different genres in Scripture, but here we see wisdom. In the Psalms, we see how to worship, and in Proverbs, how to succeed. In Job, how to suffer. In the Song of Songs, how to love. In Ecclesiastes, how to live. And it starts with this. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Who is this man? The Hebrew word for preacher implies something about gathering and teaching. And so here is someone gathering the people of God to give them this wisdom from his quest. He doesn't clearly identify himself as Solomon, but that is what we assume. He mentions that he is a king in Jerusalem. He mentions that he is a son of David. Here is someone with incredible power and wealth and wisdom, which is something that Solomon did have. And then he went on this journey under the sun to try and taste everything the world offered. Because he had all the power, he can try everything. He had all the money to purchase everything. He had all the women and and all the time. And on top of that, he had all the wisdom to think and consider and wrestle with these issues. He tried everything, and his quest, his test was very honest, broad, commendable, genuine. He tried and tasted so that you won't have to. It would be foolish of you to think that you yourself need to try and taste everything in the world to make your own conclusions. You need to listen to someone who has gone before you. If you like Kinefe Bijipni, and you want to find the best one in Los Angeles... You can make a list of the hundred top places and each week go to a different pastry and try your kinefe bejipni. And then what? Do you know what would happen to you after all the bread and sugar and cheese? Do you know what happens to your health? No, tasting and trying everything is foolish. The Bible doesn't say taste. The Bible says test Not taste all things, but test all things. And so we look at this text, and we are to test what he is saying. He has gone on a quest before us. He has tried and experienced, and he just got back. I want you to imagine that there's a group of people in front of the gate, the city gate, and this man, this old man comes back, and he has long gray hair, and his eyes are tired, and you know, hollow, and he is utterly exhausted, and he just flops in front of us. And he says, vanity. All is vanity. We look at the first 11 verses, and for a moment we look at life without God. All vanity. All meaningless. All empty. Consider all your work, all that you enjoy, all that you accomplish, all that you face, all the hardships, all the gain, all is pointless. 
All is lost. Nothing remains. At some point, you will lose everything or lose the enjoyment of these things. And then you die and you take nothing with you. A generation comes and a generation goes and no one remembers you. Does this sound depressing? Don't walk out of church just yet. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One day we will die. The mountains will still be there. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Do you know the names of your great-grandparents? Maybe. Do you think your great-grandchildren will know anything about you, your story, your work, your hobbies? Probably not. We will come and go, and we will be forgotten. Chapter 2, verse 16. For of the for of the wise is of the fool, there is no enduring rem- remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So, without God, nothing matters. In fact, whether you are righteous or foolish, that doesn't matter because in the end you will still die, he is saying. Or look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. All go to one place. All from the dust and to dust all return. We all die, and then what? Who knows? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? If that is the case, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So we are like animals. We die, and they die. The righteous and the foolish all die. All, in a sense, is meaningless. So what does it gain? What is the profit of accomplishing and gaining all these things? He says, what does it profit? And that sounds like Mark 8, when Jesus asked the same question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit to make much of your life and work and money, trying to make a name for yourself, leave a legacy? It is all empty. Nothing is new. In those first few verses, starting with verse 3, we see three different pictures. The first is of the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The rising sun reminds me of Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But without God, nothing is new every morning. We start the new morning. Without God, there is no steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Day after day, the sun comes up, the sun comes down. The earth keeps rotating. We keep revolving around the sun. It is just another day. It is meaningless. The wind, the blowing of the wind is meaningless. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Consider the wind. Whether it be a light breeze at the park or whether it be a storm, a tornado, right? Something great is happening. But look closely. It's just going in different directions. And that is it. Nothing really is happening. Great commotion just going in circles. What about the water? Verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. So the most famous waterfall, Niagara, it won't run out of water. It'll just keep water falling. Next week, the water will still flow. What about the tallest waterfall in the world, the Angel Falls of Venezuela? Is it going to 
run out? No, it'll probably spill more water, and then the water will flow, and then the rivers, and then the rivers will go into the lakes, and the water there will go into the ocean, and then it will repeat every hour, every day, again and again. What about TV shows? Will they have anything new? No. Don't you realize that it's the same crime TV shows year after year with different name, different actors? What about your cell phones? Have they changed really? Do you know that with iPhone 7 only the little button has changed? Nothing is new. What about family problems? Consider the last 100 years. Have family problems really changed? No. What about the racial tension in our country? Has anything improved in the last 100 years? Not really. Is this bothering you? Good. There's more. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear is filled with hearing. Another translation says, All of life is far more boring than words can ever say. These 11 verses are an introduction to the book. Probably written by a separate author, not the main preacher. And as we look at the message of the preacher, as we look at his quest and his conclusions, there are three phrases that he keeps repeating throughout the book. The first one is his conclusion that all is meaningless. We see this over and over. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's repeated. He says, meaningless of meaninglessness, vanity of vanities. There's this emphasis that all is vanity, and it is in an ongoing manner vanity. He says this in the beginning and also at the very end. In the conclusion. And if you read carefully through the book and you try to find that one word, you will see that he says pleasure is meaningless, chapter 2. Wisdom and morality is meaningless in chapter 2. Work is meaningless in chapter 4. You will die, someone else will take everything. Money is meaningless, chapter 5. Injustice is meaningless in chapter 6. Over 35 times he's saying it's meaningless. It's like smoke. Not that it quickly goes away, but you think something's there. You try to hold it, but there's nothing there. One comedian, Louis C.K., said the following. Underneath everything in your life, there's this thing. That empty, forever empty. Just that knowledge that it is all for nothing and you're alone. The atheist Richard Dawkins once said, Human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. Life is meaningless. It is as if we are chasing the wind. That's the second phrase. We see this in verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. You see, he's, he's tasted, he's tried everything. And what's his conclusion? And behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. Again, he looks at work and money in chapter 2. Again, all is vanity, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's all chasing the wind. If your computer has a virus, you can restart the computer ten times. Nothing's going to happen. It's chasing the wind. If you put your little hamster in the wheel in the cage and it runs and runs and runs, it's not going anywhere. It's chasing the wind. Growing up, there was a TV show I used to watch called Gilligan's Island. I think watching that show was chasing the wind as well. But here's a group of people went on a three-hour tour and they got lost in the storm and they ended up on an island. And the whole show is them trying to get off the island. And every episode, Gilligan finds a way to get off the island and then he messes up, and Skipper hits him, and the professor gets frustrated, and they are still stuck on the island. 
In fact, throughout the shows, people ended up on the island as well, but those people somehow found a way out. And throughout the series, over 700 characters were able to get off the island. Gilligan was chasing the wind. He was stuck on the island. There was no way out. Also, life under the sun. We are in vanity. We are chasing the wind. We are living life under the sun. Over 30 times he gives this perspective. Under the sun. Here on earth. In 9.3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. He says, This is evil. The righteous, the sinner, all under the sun, all face hardships, and they all die. What is the point of life under the sun? People die, work is left, riches are gained but not enjoyed. There is injustice. As you hear all this, don't simply be overwhelmed or frustrated. Don't just be frustrated at this message and leave it at that. Let this ongoing emphasis of meaninglessness break you. The message of this book is meant to dismantle and pull apart the ideas of our life, a life without God. We want this truth to dismantle our house so that that we have made for ourselves and by ourselves. And only then can Jesus make the house once more by himself and for himself. And so if this message is bothering you and breaking you, that is a good place to be. Remember last week's sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that it started with the Beatitudes. Remember the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We first have to come to a point that we have nothing. We are poor in spirit, for only then can we receive everything from God. One pastor put it this way. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in ourselves. It is this tremendous awareness of utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. This is to be poor in spirit. We have relied on ourselves way too long. We have been confident of ourselves way too long. Let us come before the Lord in poverty. Let us come together and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Will you learn this lesson? The preacher had everything, and he realized he had nothing. And we are in the same place. We have anything, and we have everything. Will you consider fasting from things in your life so that God wakes you up? There are things in our life that are distracting us, taking a hold of our attention, our mind, our thoughts, our time, and our money. What is it that you need to fast from this week? Yes, the whole week. To expose your idols, to address the issues of self-control, to quiet your heart. could be considering taking a break from TV or social media. It could be a break from this or that. It could be a break from this hobby or whatever it is in your life to pull away from it, to spend this week seeking the Lord wholeheartedly because it is dangerous to hear this and then run to distraction as if nothing has happened. 
Do you see why this book is important for us? Do you see why it's important to address these questions? Because it's about time that we as church stop giving quick and simple answers to the big issues of life. Let us not say, let go and let God. It's okay, just trust God. He has plans to prosper you and to give you a future. Don't ask questions, just believe. Such quick responses have no room here. We have people who are struggling. Could it be that people are not coming to church because they think that in church we do not address the hard questions? We blindly and quickly answer and believe. But we are a people and we are a community with real problems and real questions and real pain and real doubts and struggles. And so let us be honest about this. Let us come with our doubts because that is not the problem. Unbelief is. Doubt is part of the Christian life where our faith is being stretched and it is growing. And so let us come and open the scriptures together. Because even though life is meaningless under the sun, there is also life above the sun. In Ecclesiastes, we see a glimpse of life without God. But also throughout the text, we see life with God. Without God, everything is meaningless. With God, everything is meaningful. We say nothing matters, but with God we say everything matters. And so throughout the book, even though we see repeated vanity, chasing the wind, and under the sun, we see many references to God and His work. We see Him to be the maker and creator, chapter 11, 12. We see Him to be the shepherd at the end of the book. In chapter 5, it says that He is God in heaven, and we are on earth. We come poor in spirit and we look to God. And in fact, looking to God brings us to a greater poverty of spirit. And the more we see Him, the less we see ourselves. And the more we see His holiness, the more we see our sin. And the more we see His greatness, the more our pride withers. And the more we look to Him, the more we are blessed. John Calvin said, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So let us be reduced to nothing and let us look to him alone because God's presence changes everything. Without God, we're lost on the journey, but he alone is our guide. Without God, nothing makes sense, but with God, he is the sustainer and creator. Without God, we are hopeless. But with God, we have salvation. So as we look at the book once more, I want to point out three truths about God and our responses to each. Three truths about God. You can write these down. First, that God is creator who works and sustains. He is the creator. He is working and sustaining. And so nothing is meaningless. All is purposeful. Nothing is meaningless. God's working, and so everything is purposeful. 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in His time. In chapter 7 we read, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It's all from God. The good days, the bad days. He is working and we cannot undo what he is doing. It's all flowing through the filter of his loving and wise hands. 11.5 As you do not know, the way of the Spirit comes to the bones of the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
the forming of a child in the womb, the, the becoming of a soul, this is completely beyond us. Each pregnancy is a miracle. You listen to the heartbeat on the ultrasound. You see the birth. It is an amazing miracle. It is mysterious and beautiful. It is the doing of God. We do not understand that. How much more do we not understand the work of God? We need to see that in all things, God is working. Your struggle is not purposeless. It is meaningful. Your sickness, your pain... Your unemployment, your stress, your exhaustion, the tension, whatever issue that you are facing is not a mistake from God. It is the working of God for your good and for His glory. Everything is purposeful in the life of the Christian. And so what is our response? To be still, to be in awe, and to be quiet. Stop talking, stop assuming, stop complaining. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. We need to be quiet just a bit more as we wrestle with these issues, knowing that we are before a God who is in heaven. Number two. God is the giver of all grace. Nothing is meaningless. Everything is precious. God who gives all grace. And so all is precious. Let me ask you, how are you doing when it comes to gratitude? How are you doing when it comes to bitterness? But how are you doing when it comes to gratitude? That says quite a bit about your spiritual health. Are you seeing the countless blessings of God upon you? Look at what he is doing now. What is happening in your life now? What are you going to face this week? What about the past? What about your upbringing? What about your conversion? What about those incredible moments where you saw God at work? Are we taking note of those things? Yes, Ecclesiastes is overwhelming. But God doesn't want you to put your head down, being overwhelmed. He wants you to keep your head up and look to him and be mindful of the blessings he has given you. In chapter 3, we read, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good, as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all this toil, for it is God's gift to them. In another verse, he says, For apart from him, who can eat and who can have this? This is God's gift. Who can give this enjoyment but God? This is a command for us to receive these blessings, to rejoice in them. Actually, a few times it says there's nothing better than rejoicing. Be mindful of the good things in your life and rejoice in them. Joy is quite serious. For food and drink, enjoyment, celebration, also marriage. Chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Like all blessings, your spouse is a gift. An ongoing reminder of God's grace to you. Do you see that? Do you treat them like that? Knowing that all is a gift, we deserve nothing. We dare not approach God with a sense of entitlement. I'll say it again. Let's not come before God with a sense of entitlement as if he owes us blessings. You can say that you'll be disciplined, but I encourage you not to say that. 
How dare we say things like, after all I've done, after all the years that I've served in church, of course he should be blessing me. No, he operates on grace. We know what we deserved, and it's not good. But he gives us what we don't deserve, and that is his presence. And so grace is serious, and so should joy be serious. In fact, if you want a good book on joy, don't go to Philippians. Go to Ecclesiastes. Almost in every chapter, there's this reminder to rejoice. Could it be that God is giving you all these things to give you grace during a painful season? This is not a happy book. He's very genuine about hardships, but he is saying maybe he is blessing you so you can rejoice in those things. Chapter 5, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So yes, life might be hard. But listen, God is keeping you preoccupied. God is distracting you from your pain with the blessings in your life. So don't heavily dwell on the pain and the loss and what you don't have and the disappointments and then the unanswered prayers. Don't dwell on them. We know that already. Instead, dwell on the good things that he has given you, but not too much or else they will be a hindrance and an idol. Don't worship the gifts, but the giver. Because if you do, you will be judged. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. And that is the third point, that here we have a God who is a creator, we have a God who is the giver of grace, but also we have a God who is the judge. And so nothing is meaningless, all will be weighed on his scales. We will give an accounting of all things. So all things are not meaningless. We cannot be careless when it comes to the health of our soul. We cannot be careless when it comes to our spiritual growth. We cannot be casual about the sins in our lives. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every manner and every work. At the very end, in his conclusion, this is how he ends. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so everything, God sees everything, everything you say, everything you think, everything you do. In Christ, you will give an accounting for all those things. In his book on Ecclesiastes called Why Everything Matters, Philip Ryken said the following, Everything in the universe is subject to the eternal verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. The things we do and do not do today will be seen in the light of the final judgment. We come to Ecclesiastes with the despairing thought that nothing really matters. But, by the grace of God, we leave with the hopeful realization that everything does. Everything matters. So how do we live? With fear and obedience. If he's the judge, our response is to be fearful and obedient. That is what he ends with in verse 13. Last chapter. The end of all matter. All has been learned. This is his answer from his quest. After tasting and trying everything, he leaves us with this. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God is, God is holy, and all that God does will remain forever. And so let us fear God. Let us not run away as if he's going to harm us. Let us fear him. Let us not be scared as if he is still against us. In Christ, he is for us. But let us fear him. Let us tremble before his holy presence. Let us dare not take him lightly. Let us be serious about holiness. And friend, how is this possible? 
When we see life under the sun is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. When we see who God is, how he is this great creator, he is holy and gracious, he is going to judge us. How do those connect? How can we who are under the sun relate with this God who is above the sun? Because the answer is Jesus, who was above the sun and came under the sun to be with us. If Ecclesiastes is the question, then Jesus is the answer. Because without him, nothing is enough. Work, pleasure, money, nothing. But in Christ, everything is enough. And we have this Christ who came under the sun, who walked this broken world, this place of meaninglessness, this place of pain. And for our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he died for us and rose again to give us life. He carried our sins and our sorrows on his shoulders so that he can bring us to a place of peace with God and fullness of life. If you remember in verse 10 of chapter 1, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it has said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Yes, under the sun, nothing is new. But in Jesus, everything is new. Jesus has come to make new all things. In Jesus, you can become a new creation. He has come to give you a new birth. You can live with this new hope and this new purpose for life and a new power and with a new family and a new joy. And one day, all will be new when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore. For all the things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new. Jesus says, let me correct that. I will make all things new. And so my question to you is, how are you? Are you simply frustrated and overwhelmed? Will you forget this when you walk out the door? Is God breaking your heart and opening your eyes? Will you pray that God would crush you of your pride? Do you see how pointless life is without God? Do you see him today? Will you turn to him for new life? Will you see him not only as creator, but also savior and no longer that judge? Without him, nothing matters. With him, everything matters. God is And that changes everything.